and welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to make realistic improvements in their lives and reach their goals, however big or small. We are building a community of men and women who love to push themselves to overcome obstacles and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hello all, and a special hello to the new listeners we have this week. Welcome. I hope that you feel encouraged by what you hear today. I have a really great interview for you, as always. Thank you for the wonderful listeners who have been sharing the ways they are challenging themselves with my Do Something series. I have a short highlight for you at the end of this episode. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please check back a few episodes for the one entitled Do Something Revival. You can also find that on my blog, aboutprogress.com. I love hearing your stories as well as seeing what you do while you listen to this podcast. Like my friend Michelle, who listened to three episodes in a row while washing dishes, cleaning, and working on designing her living room. Let me know how this podcast is getting you through your day by messaging me on Instagram or Facebook, my handle being aboutprogress, or by tagging your posts with aboutprogresspodcast. I have an interview today that is especially meaningful for me. Have you ever met a teenager who you felt sure would change the world? Lucy Ciali is that teen to me. Lucy might just be 16 years old, but she has the wisdom and power of someone much, much older. Lucy is a poet, writer, activist, singer, among other things, and above all, she is a champion of acceptance of others. But for many dark years, Lucy could not accept herself. When you see Lucy's social media feed, she is powerful, real, and unapologetic. When you see her in real life, she is all that, but also warm, inviting, open, kind, and funny. Lucy is both of these, and she is this way for a reason. In this podcast, Lucy shares her hard life experiences that created a young teen full of self-hatred and doubt and one ridden by an obsessive drive of perfectionism. She describes the lows that came as a result, as well as the turning points toward her reclaiming her life. Lucy's fight for activism is her way of reclaiming the things life took away from her. It's her way of reclaiming that for others. And you've got to stick around to hear her amazing poem at the end of the interview. Oh, and one quick disclaimer before we go on. Lucy has permission from her parents to be on this podcast. So let's get to Lucy. I'm here with Lucy Ciali. Hello, Lucy. Hey, Monica. Thanks for doing this for me. I want you to tell us a bit about yourself, if you can give our listeners an introduction. Uh, My name is Lucy. I am 16 years old. I'm a sophomore in high school right now. Um, If I were to identify myself, I'd say that I am a spoken word poet, a writer, most definitely. Um, I am a student, a learner, a teacher. Um, I'm one of 13 siblings, well, 13 kids in total in my family. Um, I'm Mormon, and um, my favorite color is yellow. 
So you have so many talents. Like you were, you were saying some of the things that you feel like you would label yourself as. And, and on top of that, you're really good at singing and acting and dancing. And I mean, I've seen you do your spoken word, your poetry. I've read a ton of your writing. You clearly have an amazing work ethic. And I wanted to know, have you always been that way? Have you always been a go-getter? Um, looking back on life, I could definitely say that that has always been the way um, that I was. Um, that That's due to the way that I was raised, most, most definitely. My father first came here from um, the island of Tonga, and he worked for years and years and years to get his citizenship. Um, and he raised me telling me the stories of him and his childhood and how hard it was for him to get to where he is now and how worth it it was to see us all um, get onto this path of success. And so I think that that's mainly why I've, I am the way that I am, just because I've seen the struggle and I'm living the struggle and I just realized that everything that I'm doing right now is worth it and there's so much more that I can be doing to make my dad proud, make myself proud and make the struggle worth what it was. And Lucy, I think if someone were to look at your social media work, the, the work that you do there, the common thread that I see you do and what you advocate for is that call for people to accept themselves for sure. But I also see this underlying foundation too, this call to accept themselves for who they are, their imperfections included. So while I feel like we could spend our entire interview talking about just your advocacy work alone, I wanted to mm-hmm. direct the majority of this conversation to you, which I, don't, I think you are good because in the work you are doing, you don't talk about yourself very much. You talk about the things that you are trying to away, raise um, awareness for, but I, I want to talk about you and what mm-hmm. made you this person who is willing to be bold and passionate and intense, call people out on things, call for support. And I think a lot of that comes from your own struggles in your life. So I want to know why is it important to you that people accept others, but also accept themselves. And I want to know first off, how do you view yourself growing up and I want to know if that comes into play with your eventual role in advocacy mm-hmm. um, growing up I definitely I don't think I ever viewed myself in a positive light unless it came to my work um, in school or anything like that something tangible that would literally tell me of my worth um, mm-hmm. having to learn self love was something that was extremely foreign to me like I never saw value in myself unless it was a grade on a piece of paper. Like, I didn't think that I was smart enough unless my teacher told me that I was. I never thought that I was pretty enough unless my parents told me that I was. Um, And having to learn to get validation from myself was something that I didn't only start learning or understanding until very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say up until about freshman year, probably, I searched for validation and just about everything besides myself and my own mind and my own opinions and thoughts. Um, the reason for this being was that in my culture, well, generally in the culture that, um, in everyone's culture, basically, um, self-hatred is something that is often 
like received but also taught if that makes any sense um in my culture especially just um just the way that I was brought up I was taught that everything that I was was not good enough um Mm -hmm. just growing up I remember being extremely like very 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 thin up until I think first grade and then um I definitely started getting bigger and um my weight was probably the thing and my body my body image itself, not the person who I was, but the, my body image itself was definitely something that I struggled with for a long time. Yeah. Um, I grew up with morals and I grew up with standards that to this day I still have and to this day people still respect and know me for. People know that I am a strong person, I'm strong-minded, I am outgoing, um, and what I want, I'm going to do everything in my power to get it and I'm going to make sure that I do it right and I um, I'm always trying to help others and trying to do service, and I know that about myself. That's something that I know and that I accept. But just my my image on my body itself has always been something that I've struggled with, mm-hmm. and um, people usually think that it's not it's not a big deal. Like, oh yeah, everyone thinks that they're a little too heavy. Everyone thinks that they have bad skin or just not pretty hair or something like that. But being not only a girl, but a woman of color in an area that is predominantly white, that all of that, um, all of that pressure eventually pushed me into a place, into a mindset that was not healthy for the longest time. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially with my culture itself being specifically Tongan, um, a Tongan young girl living in an area that's predominantly white. Everywhere I look, it's basically like, oh yeah, you're not good enough. Everywhere I look. Going to school, I remember hearing remarks of boys saying, yeah, I can never like a brown girl. Um, Coming home, I always remember hearing, oh, yeah, like, you need to stop eating. You're not eating um, the way that you should be, like your sisters. You're getting to look like your brother too much. Um, I often got compared to my brother, mostly in size and in dress. Um, Due to my size, I could not wear my sister's hand-me-downs just because we were not the same size at all. So I remember one time she gave me a pair of jeans and I couldn't fit into them. And so from that day on, I started wearing my brother's clothes and I got labeled as like this tomboy, um, this tomboy and stuff. And in our society, if a woman is not feminine, then her sexuality is often questioned. And I remember people would accuse me of being, um, by accuse, I mean, like they would say in an extremely negative light, like they would... Um, just assume that I was not heterosexual, just call me a lesbian or something just because I dressed like a boy. Um, and I remember that, that all of this contribute, contributed to my self-hatred for myself. Um, and it got extremely bad in middle school, especially. Um, just because when I got to middle school, that was when girls started liking boys. And um, I'm straight, but I was never into relationships, if that makes any sense. Yep. And so... I just remember thinking, oh, if a boy doesn't like me, then that probably means that I'm ugly and that probably means that I'm not good enough because I see all these other girls getting into relationships. And when you're a young girl in my position and you see everyone doing something and you're not doing that, instantly in your head, there's rejection to yourself. You think that you're doing Mm -hmm. something wrong. And um, initially I kept telling myself like, oh, no, don't worry. Like, it's fine. Like, um, you just choose not to date because you don't want to. But obviously that took a toll on me. Um, seeing all these girls get validation and me not getting that. Um, And then 
now at the place where I am now, I just look back and I think, oh, wow, I could have just, like, validated myself. I could have appreciated myself and all of this would have gone away. But looking back, it wasn't so easy. It's not so easy to say I love myself. It's so hard. It is so hard for people to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and truly appreciate themselves for everything that they are, everything that they're not, and their flaws and their imperfections. And that's something that I've been working on, and I haven't even gotten anywhere near, but I'm trying. And it's better than what it was before. Because before I would wake up, and I would... I would literally spend hours, hours choosing my clothes just to um, see what would make me look less big, less fat. Um, I remember in seventh grade, my health hit an extreme low. Um, in seventh grade, I started to drift away from the church um, due to my insecurities. I kept thinking, I remember in seventh grade when I was in a woman's um I remember hearing one of my leaders say, God loves you, Jesus loves you. And um, in my head, I kept thinking, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I rejected that for the longest time, for about two and a half years to be exact. Yeah. Um, I couldn't accept his love because I couldn't love myself. Mm -hmm. And that barrier was not only crushing to me, but it was crippling. Like everything, mm -hmm. everything fell when I couldn't love myself everything fell because even if I got straight A's um, even if I wrote good papers and even if I still wrote poetry if I can't love myself at the end of the day if I can't appreciate myself at the end of the day then none of that mattered at the time none of that would matter none of that would make any sense to me because there would always be that barrier there would always be that barrier of self-hatred preventing me from doing my best and it took me the longest time to realize that my self-worth did not come on the A-pluses on my report cards, that my self-worth should not come from random boys at school or from my parents or from anyone else besides me and my relationship with my heavenly parents in Christ. And um, due to my insecurities and due to my self-hatred, I eventually pushed the church away because I blamed the church most of the time for my insecurities. I just kept thinking, no, it's not good enough. I don't, I don't feel good enough for this love. I rejected God's love not only because I couldn't love myself, but also because I was at the point in time in which I didn't feel like I was good enough because I saw people like my bishop. I saw people like my fellow young woman, like my own leaders. I saw them all doing these amazing things, and I saw them progressing. And eventually, I not only envied that, but I also felt like if I'm not doing that, if I can't be as good as they are, then I don't deserve the same love that they received from our heavenly parents. I don't deserve that. And not only did I reject the love from those around me and from my um, heavenly parents in Christ, but I prevented myself from receiving it in it's full capacity. Yeah. Um, and it took me the longest time to realize that for two and a half years, for so the time that I hated um, my heavenly parents, for so the time that I hated Christ, those around me, I, I had to realize that that love never went away. It never stopped. There was no pause. There was no break. It never went away. It was still there. And um, 
when I was a freshman, that was when I finally realized that I had to take that. I had to accept that. And I had to make the choice to keep going. I want to know more about that turning point. What was it about that time in your life as a freshman, not that long ago, that Mm -hmm. told you it's time to shift my perspective on myself? Mm -hmm. Well, um, just as like a piece of context, when leading up to this turning point was not easy. Um, And for me, it may not be the same for a lot of people because talking about my road to progression, to self-acceptance, a lot of people think that something big, major has to happen. Um, For me, it was more of like a gradual, slow um, increase. And Mm -hmm. until I really reached my breaking point, that was when I had to draw the line and realize that what was going on was not was not the healthiest um, method of living for me. And that was when I really had to make the choice to go back and rethink the steps that I took to get to where I am now. Um, but starting in seventh grade, just as like a piece of context, um, seventh grade was when I really, really, really hit my low point of self-hatred. That was when um, I remember being in one of my history classes and um, I was called fat up until... I, I mean, still to this day. Um, that just shocks I was me. Always, yeah, I was always, <laughs> I was always made fun true, of for my B, weight. I can't believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my weight was always a topic of conversation in every single environment I've ever been in. Um, it's always been something in the back of my head. Like no matter, no matter how much um, I told the people who love themselves that that was always one thing that I can never get over. And it's still something that I struggle with deeply today. And in seventh grade, I remember talking with um, one of my family members and she was just like in the Tongan culture where we're very straight up. If we, if we think something, we're going to say like, there's no filter basically. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way that people are. And um, I was talking with one of my relatives, um, and she started to joke around about my weight. And um, then one of my cousins was saying, like, yeah, you almost weigh as much as me. And he's this, like, six-foot-tall, like, 255-pound man. He's massive. Um, and to be a seventh-grade girl, like, this tiny little girl, be compared to this man and in a negative light. Yeah. Um, that was crushing. That was crippling. And I've always been called fat in school, and I've always defended myself. Um, I remember being called fat in sixth grade by this one boy in class, and he made fun of me. Um, I think he I think he said something along the lines of, whenever you walk, I can feel the ground shake. And I remember replying back with something like, yeah, that's my staff coming back at you. Um, I always had this method of defense. Like, I never, I never took it as something that was bad. I thought something was bad until... I saw it come out of the mouth of one of my beloved family members. Um, which is something that in my culture, especially people are very blind to, um, people in my culture are very blind to the effects and the repercussions that their words and their actions can have. Um, cause little did my, little did my relative know that her words still affect me to this day, that that incident still affects me to this day. And from that point on, I remember in seventh grade, um, I think by the end of seventh grade, I got to a very, very, very um, low weight. I think I was, I think I weighed around 
maybe a little over 100 pounds. Um, I was extremely small. I starved myself for most of the time. Um, and I think that the summer after seventh grade, I was, um, I went on to this ridiculous eating habit. Um, I've never been, and this is the, this is actually the first time I've ever actually talked about this openly. Yeah. Um, so pardon me if I'm like stuttering or anything. No, um, you're fine. The summer after seventh grade, um, towards the end of seventh grade, I started cutting down on food and watching the way that I would eat, and I would exercise a lot more than usual. Um, and then when summer hit, when I didn't have school anymore, when I wasn't focusing on my grades, um, school I used as a distraction. I used it as validation. And when that went away, just I was left with nothing. I was left with only me, myself, my thoughts, my opinions, just everything that I've internalized. It was thrown in my face the summer after seventh grade. Um, and I got to a low point in my health in which I eventually worked myself and pushed myself to the point where um, I had a stroke um, oh, wow. the summer after seventh grade. And I went to the hospital for it. And I remember um, lying to my family, lying to my parents about what, what had happened. I told them I just overheated while I was exercising and... Um, I remember lying to people at church when they would ask me about the hospital band on my wrist. And um, mm-hmm. I remember being carried out in the gurney from mm-hmm. our apartment and seeing my sisters run out and, like, asking my dad, what happened, what happened and stuff, and then having to come up with this story to cover it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I covered it up was not because I was afraid of the judgment, which is something that I was afraid of, but... It was something I was willing to take. The reason why I kept it on the down low for so long was because I remember the looks that my sisters gave me when they saw me on the gurney. Um, I remember the look that my dad had in his face and I was, when I woke up in the hospital after being unconscious and something about that hit me. Something about that stuck with me. Um, and at this point, I thought that this would be a huge turning point for me. I thought that after I hit this super, super, super bad low, I thought that that would be it for me. I thought that I would turn around and start to love myself. But after this, things only got harder. Really? Because, yeah, exactly. Because um, this, I felt like, um, I felt like after this, I this was just motivation for me to keep going, but to just mm. keep it under wraps even more. Yeah. Because I saw the stress that it put on my family, and I didn't want to put that on them anymore. So I realized that eventually I just got into this horrible cycle of blaming myself. Yeah. So I blamed myself for doing that to myself. I blamed myself for going to the hospital. I blamed myself for putting all this stress and fear into my family's eyes and stuff like that. And I, I blamed myself for all of it. Um, yeah. And during eighth grade, I got, I, got a bit, I got healthier because school started up again. Yeah. Um, can I, can I stop I you, still, Lucy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go I ahead, remember, go ahead. I remember that summer. And I mm. remember, I mean, I was one of your leaders. We should tell the people I was one of your leaders. And mm-hmm. I was really distressed about you. I don't know if you remember. We hadn't. I know, remember, you, yeah. You remember? Well, mm-hmm. and that was even before, you know, we were, I was worried about you, you know, more mm-hmm. in the more recent past. But even 
long ago it was a fairly new beehive and I saw you I saw myself in you from day one and mm-hmm. you know we discuss as leaders you know we, we talk about our girls like how do you think this girl's doing how's this girl doing and you know they've just nobody picked up on it right away except me I said I, I know what she's going yeah. through I know what's going on with her I can tell it I can tell the second I see your eyes even if we're in a room with food you know or going to a swimming thing and and you and it was really hard for you like something like that mm-hmm. is like I know what she's doing or we had a clothing exchange party right yeah yeah I remember all of that, especially yeah. the clothing exchange. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, I had been in your shoes, but it's still even from someone who's been there. Mm-hmm. You can't help someone unless they let you in. Just like how you were saying, yeah. you were blaming yourself so much that you were not in the mindset to open up enough to receive help at that time. And that's what scared me more than anything. Yeah. But I didn't know about the stroke. Mm-hmm. I had no oh, idea. Oh, I kept it under wraps. And I was, I got to this point in which I was lying so much that I began, I began to accept it as the truth. Mm-hmm. I was becoming so desensitized to my, um, my very, very poor habits that I just normalized it all. I just yeah. acted like it was all normal. Like I got used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and after everything that happened with my health and stuff in seventh grade and after it all um, blew over and stuff. And I, at this time during eighth grade, I, I was barely attending church. Um, I was lucky to even go maybe once a month. Um, and um, looking back on it, I remember how wild it was to, that I was so blind to all of the love that I was receiving. And that's all because of my self-hatred. That's all because mm-hmm. of, the mindset that I was in. I remember my bishop, he pulled me in. He asked me, the only, like, I remember you um, texting me constantly, always, I knew that you both knew what was going on. I knew that you could tell that something was up, so I just rejected it. I didn't want it. I didn't want to accept your help because accepting your health, accepting the help from others means accepting that you have an issue. It means accepting that you know that something's wrong and that you need to do something about it. Yeah. And for my entire life, I kept telling myself, I have everything under control. I don't need mm-hmm. anyone. I don't need any help. I have it under control. Yeah, and that. that belief, yeah, that pride, that pride was crippling. That crushed me. Um, oh, and yeah. in eighth grade, I eventually su- suppressed everything that I was feeling. Um, suppressed so everything to the point to where like, I just became numb to it. Feeling too much to feeling too little as a coping mechanism. Yeah, exactly. Okay, go into that felt... some more too. Tell us how. Mm-hmm. How you, you said it, 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 that wasn't the lowest low that seventh grade summer. Mm-hmm. So you numbed yourself, um, then what from there? Yeah, in eighth grade, I think that that was the. Um, I think eighth grade was the year when the church came out about its new policy regarding mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus members. I think yeah. that was it. Um, and after that happened, I remember that that was just all the more reason for me to just push the church completely out of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this time, my father wasn't at home, and my mom couldn't come to church because she was working, like, nearly seven days a week. Um, and so I remember just skipping church, just not going. Um, and we I should say your dad, with, your dad was 
Um, tell, he tell was in Tonga for, um, yeah, my dad was in Tonga for this uh, a political movement that he was leading for democracy yeah. um, in Tonga. He's trying to bring democracy to the people. Um, we're the only Pacific island right now, I'm pretty sure, that has um, a monarchy set up. So he's trying to change that. And so he yeah. went there. Um, and so I was at home with my siblings and my mom. Um, and I just, I didn't blame, I, I never blame my siblings for not asking more questions. I never blame my parents for not being more curious. Um, because I, I remember at the time being angry. I remember at the time being upset as to why people didn't see what was going on, if that makes any sense. I half of me wanted people to ask me something half of me wanted them to realize that something was going on um, and the other half of me just wanted to continue to suppress it because like after everything I just my number one priority was just not being a burden yeah. just, I didn't want to be an issue on someone's mind and um, eventually I learned that this was due to partly um, the culture of women mm-hmm. that well the way that women see themselves in my culture. Um, In the Tongan culture, women are often taught to be suppressive, to be Mm. um, quiet, submissive. Um, And I was raised learning this, not by my mother, but just by the way that I saw other, um, like, Tongan women in my life. Um, I just remember seeing so many Tongan women... um, be quiet, be submissive to their surroundings, to their environment, to people around them. And I grew up with that, and that was ingrained in my brain. Just don't be an issue to other people. Just don't be a problem. Just don't be a problem. And I realized that I grew up thinking that I was an issue, Mm -hmm. that I was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, that was one of the main reasons why I constantly rejected help. And I just figured if I don't want to be an issue, then I can just pretend like I'm not. I can just pretend like none of this exists. And for most of eighth grade and after that, I just suppress everything. I And by suppress everything, I literally suppress everything. I just didn't think about any of my internal feelings. I didn't think about any of the issues that I was struggling with. I just forgot about it all. I just tried to suppress it. And as this was going on, I went into, I dealt with, I dealt with it in unhealthy ways, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I eventually began to um, not only, I I self-harmed myself in ways that you wouldn't expect. And by self-harm, I don't necessarily mean physical harm. I mean, like, emotional and spiritual harm. Yeah. Um, And I think that this was the lowest point for me, just Mm -hmm. because I got into this mindset that was so dark that it scared me. It scares me now, looking back on where I was. That scares me. Looking back on how I viewed myself that all scares me to this day that Mm. that I could really 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 truly live that way live with that mindset live with that dark way of thinking I got to the point in eighth grade as to which I saw myself as nothing yeah I got to the point in which if I died or disappeared or got stolen or taken away tomorrow it wouldn't matter um 
And no matter how much my family told me they loved me, no matter, I never, it was never a matter of, of not receiving enough love, not receiving enough care from those around me. That was never the issue. Um, it was more of, I didn't see myself worthy enough of that love. So I couldn't accept it. I didn't see myself worthy enough of that help. So I couldn't accept it. Mm -hmm. And, um, this is when I hit my lowest point, when I just literally got to the point where my existence just didn't seem necessary to me, where mm -hmm. I didn't feel like there was enough space for me in this world. Um, and I got to a dark place physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, and in ninth grade, I just remember when I, when I got to high school, I just remember... Um, High school, freshman year, freshman year is probably one of the most progressive years I've ever had in my entire life. Um, I got to the point where I was, I finally started taking part in activism and stuff like that. And the main, okay, in, starting in eighth grade, basically, the way that I coped with all of these feelings, the way that I coped with this feeling of emptiness and worthlessness was with my academics and with my extracurricular activities. Yeah. Um, which sounds weird, but to go into, I mean, basically, I just distracted myself constantly. Mm -hmm. um, I remember my leaders at church would literally ask me, like, oh, how was your week? And I would say, all this stuff that I'm doing, and they would reply, how are you keeping up with all of that? And I always thought that that was a weird question to ask. I always thought that that was weird. Like, what do you mean, how am I keeping up with all of it? This is normal for me. Like, this is just my schedule. And now looking back at everything I was doing that was I realized I was drowning myself. I was purposely drowning myself to distract myself from thinking about everything. Yeah. I just remember um, if I could do enough homework, if I could write enough poems, if I could memorize and sing enough songs, then I don't have to think about how crappy I am, how worthless I am, how much I hate myself. Mm -hmm. That was where I got to. Um, and a lot of people, whenever they, whenever I told them about everything I was doing, they would, you probably, like, normal person looking at me would probably think, oh, she's just, she's just involved. She's just busy. She has her life under control. She's just doing everything right. Like, she's got it. She's on track. But little did they know that I was, I was killing myself at that time. Mm -hmm. I was slowly killing myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and... In ninth grade, I remember, um, I remember hearing the term suicidal used in a way that I've never heard it being used before. Because um, when people hear the term suicidal, they instantly think someone like downing a whole bottle of pills, someone um, slitting open, slitting their wrists open, something like that, something mm -hmm. extreme. And I remember talking to one of my friends, and she said something that still stuck with me to this day. And she said, being suicidal doesn't always mean that you're trying to die. Suicidal can sometimes mean that you're just not trying to live. Oh. And that's exactly where I was in ninth grade. Um, huh. I just had no will to keep going. And I just numbed myself with schoolwork and with family activities and everything. Um, you had so and, much going on there, too. Mm -hmm. Someone looking at me would just think, no, she's not suicidal. Like, she's hanging out with family, friends, she's doing everything. 
You but, were also the president of, were you student body president in eighth grade? I was, um, yes. In middle school, I was student body vice president in seventh grade and then student body president in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was involved in clubs. Known, I was doing, right? Nobody would know, exactly. And I don't blame them because I was so good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. I was so good. I was so good at hiding it from myself. I would justify what I was doing. I remember starving myself and just saying, no, this is... This is not starving myself. This is just to, this is just to be healthy. Mm-hmm. I remember fasting on Sundays that weren't even a fast Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember coming up with the names of random family members and people asked me why am I fasting. I just said, oh, I'm fasting for my cousin who's in the hospital. I would make up any excuse to just justify what I was doing. Yeah. I I just wanted to keep thinking that I had everything under control. I was craving this this sense of perfection, this sense of control that I will never be able to have just because that's not the way that things work. Mm-hmm. I, I can't be perfect. I can't have everything under control. And the turning point for me was um, actually in church. I remember one, it was one Wednesday, um, freshman year, and I wasn't planning on going to mutual just because I didn't want to. Um, Surprise, surprise. Um, and I remember not going to Sunday, to, to church the Sunday before then, so I wasn't, I didn't know what we were going to do, but just for some weird reason, um, I just, like, I just went. Just yeah. because I finished my homework early, so I just figured, okay, I'll just go. Um, and I remember going with... Probably to get us with, off your back. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I just, oh gosh, just I remember um, going with my sister, yeah. Um, and we went to Mutual, and I remember... Um, I think that the, we were probably playing some game, and everyone left, um, and I was getting a ride from one of my leaders, and it was you, um, Megan, and Lisa, um, hmm. also my other young woman leaders, and we were in the Relief Society room, um, and I remember you were talking to me about my current situation at school. Um, there's a lot of drama going on at school during this time, politically, I mean. there was yeah. I started this huge um, protest, and so my name was being thrown around, and there was a lot of drama with my administration. Um, so basically, I was under this spotlight. Um, it was terrible. Um, and I put myself in that position because um, when I was a freshman, there was this huge, there was this um, racist in this incident in which I took action on, and I was put under the spotlight, and um, the spotlight that I was put in was, oh, Lucy Shallot, a huge activist, student body activist, like, oh, yeah, she's great. Um, and being under the spotlight, it just, I remember getting the same burning feeling in my chest that I had when um, my dad asked me a couple of days after I had my stroke, he asked me what really happened. Um oh. It was the same. I haven't gotten that feeling for about two years now, and I remember getting the same feeling in my chest, this feeling of perfection, of lie to them all, lie to them all, keep playing the game. They won't ever find out. Like this voice in my head telling me, you can keep doing it. It's okay. You can keep doing it. They're not going to find out. Um, Because being under the spotlight of being a huge activist, everything that you're doing now is magnified. Mm-hmm. If I got a bad grade, that would be even that would be magnified because the administration's on my back constantly. My teachers are on my back constantly. I have to live up to this name that people gave me, um, and that just put this whole wave of perfection 
on my entire life that I haven't had since seventh grade. I've been suppressing it for two years now, and now it's hitting me in the face. And I remember coming to Mutual that specific Wednesday, and I remember you literally asked me, so how are things? How are you doing? And I remember um, saying, I'm good, I'm good, I'm doing good. And I remember you asked me, are you really good, though? And I remember just going a little bit in depth with what was going on at school, and I told you everything um, in a summarized version. And I remember you cupping your mouth, and you, like, had this look of um, shock on your face. And I was surprised. I was like, well, what, what's going on? Like, are you okay? And I remember you saying, how are you dealing with all of that? And I remember in my head initially when you said that, I literally paused. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember when you asked that, I literally paused. I was silent for a couple of seconds, mm-hmm. which for me, that's a big deal because hmm. I've been up in, for about two and a half years now, up at that point, for about two and a half years up to that point, I've been playing this game of they ask, you answer, period. Mm-hmm. And I... I've gotten all the answers that you can, I've gotten all the questions that you can think of, and I've had all the answers planned in my head, because the more questions people ask, the more answers I have to give them, which means the more information I have to give them, which means that they're going to they're gonna see me. This is my mindset. I just kept thinking, they're going to see me for what I really am. I'm going to have to come out about this eventually, and I don't want this to become an issue. And so in my head, I just kept thinking, just keep lying, just keep hiding it, you're doing good. You're doing fine. Mm-hmm. You're almost there. And my end goal, my end goal was something that I didn't want to admit. It was just, my end goal, honestly, if I were to be completely honest, my end goal was honestly for me to just not exist. It was just for me to just not be here anymore. Mm. That was my end goal. And I kept thinking that if I can get through this conversation, if I can get through this conversation with my only leader, with my dad, with my bishop, then I'll make it there. Mm-hmm. I will never have to deal with any of this again. I can just get through this, lie to them, make sure they believe it, and then move on. Mm-hmm. And I remember when you asked me that, when you said that to me, how are you really doing? Are you really okay? I paused, and in my head I was like, you're, you're silent. You're not saying anything. She's going to tell something's up. What are you doing? You're doing something wrong. You have to keep talking. You have to keep talking. You have to keep going or else she's going to figure something's up. Why aren't you saying anything? Why aren't you saying anything? You said too much already. You said too much already. Mm -hmm. And I just kept internalizing the cycle of hatred, the cycle of doubt, the cycle of blame and shame that I was putting on myself. And then I remember breaking down and just crying. I literally started crying. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember I, like, fell down. I think I was, my back was up against the wall, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, which is, like, which is literally and metaphorically, like, my back was up against the wall. Yeah. And I remember just falling. Like, I just literally collapsed. And I sat down. And I remember you, Lisa, and Megan, you guys were all surrounding me. And my sister was there, too. And I just remember crying. And I was cupping my face. And I just remember my sleeve grew wet with tears, soaking wet with tears. I just couldn't stop crying. And I just remember you saying, you shouldn't have to do this all alone. And you didn't say it like, I told you so, I told you so. You said it as if, like, dot, dot, dot. Like, there's more. This isn't, this isn't the answer. This isn't a dead end. You shouldn't have to do this alone. You can keep going. There's another way. And I just remember... 
at that point, if I were to describe this, like, the best way that I can describe this is basically I locked myself in this room of self-hatred, of pressure, of unachievable expectations, of this unrealistic idea of perfection. I locked myself in this room, crafted by that. And my young leaders, my family, my sister, my older sister, my dad, my bishop, everyone was knocking at this door. Everyone was knocking. They were banging hard for two and a half years, and I never opened the door. And at that moment, when you asked me more, when you asked me if I was really okay, and when I realized, no, I had to wake up, I literally felt this burning feeling inside my chest, no, something's wrong. That was when I finally decided to open the door. And I can't necessarily say that opening the door was like the solution to all my problems. I can't necessarily say that from that point on, everything was easier because it still was hard. It's still hard today. It's still difficult, but it's better because I can say that I'm a lot more proud of where I am right now in life than I was two and a half years ago, three and a half years ago when I was in seventh grade. And I was lying on a hospital bed having to explain to my dad how I got there. Uh, You know, the growth you have made in just a few years far surpasses what most people make in an entire lifetime. And the wisdom that you have, I mean, you, I think, when I think about you, I just think of an ancient, powerful soul. (laughs) You know, and I just think where where there is that power there's going to be a lot of opposition mm-hmm. and you have had so much of that and, and you've been very good about not going into a lot of things and that's smart of you but I will just say the pressures that you went through that freshman year no one should be made to go through no adult could have dealt with that um, you know without completely falling apart mm-hmm. And I think about those those few years where you were unreachable, and I know you had a lot of leaders and, and adults who were looking to enter that door. And it wasn't just me, obviously, but you mm-hmm. were unreachable. What could we have done differently? What could someone have done differently to have helped you sooner, you think? I think that looking back, I think, I could, the easy answer that I could obviously be more love, more questions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But looking back, I can't, I can't honestly say that because my family gave me everything I needed. My family helped yeah. me with everything I needed. They were always there for me. My young women leaders were always there for me, always asking me if I needed anything, always supporting me with everything. My bishop, my friends, everyone was there for me. I had it all laid out right there. I had it all, but I never accepted any of it. And so looking back, I, I guess I could say that someone could do this. My mom probably could have done this differently or my dad could have done this differently, but really it was my choice to make. I, it was my move to make. And I feel like I feel like they were waiting, and it was just my turn. It was my turn to open up the door. It was always there. I just never chose to. Um, mm-hmm. But if I really were to say, if, if I wanted 
anyone to change anything, I would just ask for for the people around me, especially my family, just to watch the way that they would speak about women, especially women. Um, I don't know if that's a good answer, but um, just looking back on it, I the reason why the reason why um, I did, I wanted to change so bad was because my main motivation, my number one source of motivation, was my little sister. Because uh, looking back on it, if I if it was my little sister in my in that room, being compared to this man in a negative way, being made fun of for her weight, if that was her, I have no idea how she would have taken it. I have no idea where she would be today. Mm-hmm. And looking back on everything, I don't want my little sister to grow up with the same mindset that I was in. I don't want her to have to purge her meals after eating them because she feels guilty for um, having a sandwich. I don't want her to have to plan out every single calorie, plan out every single meal just to be good enough for some false imaginary idea of perfection. I don't want her to have to think of herself in such a negative light to have to think of her existence as unnecessary. And that was my main source of motivation because I just wanted, I wanted to get better for myself, but I also wanted to get better for her because I, I look back on it now and I, I think that the, the hardest part was having to see the look on her face, seeing me rolled out in a gurney out from our apartment. Yeah. That was the hardest part, having to see that look on her face, that look of fear. And I don't ever want her to have to see that, ever, ever again, yeah. which was a wake-up call for me, a wake-up call for me to be better, a wake-up call for me to realize that I'm not only hurting myself, but I'm hurting those around me. And I feel like that's what that's what really motivated me to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that... I think that if, if anything, if, if the people listening to this, if I want them to get anything out of this, I just want them to realize who is listening. I want them to realize who sees them and what they're doing. Because I saw, I saw so many of my relatives doing stuff that they probably didn't think twice of, but I thought twice of. Mm-hmm. Seeing some of my cousins, like, in a family room when we're all talking and stuff, seeing some of my female cousins be quieter when the males speak, seeing that, um, seeing some of my cousins um, be afraid to pick up another plate of food to get seconds just because of what they would be called, just because they're afraid of um, being made fun of and stuff like that. Being a six-year-old, seeing, um, like, my aunts and my cousins just talk about weight as a taboo thing, that took a toll on me, and that affected me, and that... That's something that I don't ever want any other little girl to ever have to think of. And and guys, too, this is not something that is just, like, eating disorders and weight issues and insecurity, that's not something that's just for women. But in a society that talks, that treats um, women and their weight as if it's this scary story that people should be afraid of, I feel like, it's especially important to watch what you say around your young girls, to make sure that they see themselves for what they are 
and what they're not and be completely okay with that. Completely okay with that. So do you feel that this desire of yours, it it seems like a strong foundation to, to what you're doing now? Now, I mean, you are an activist. You are someone who is always encouraging acceptance like you've talked about but in a in a bold way and and I wanted to know that growth that you went through after that turning point what did it look like between then and now for you how did that growth go for you um how did that growth go towards you discovering your voice and using it I think that my growth um after that turning point, um, up to where I am now, I think that it, it was a lot of things, but it was far from perfect and it never will be. And it still isn't. And that's something, that's the biggest thing that I've had to come to accept that perfection is a goal that is not only unnecessary and unrealistic, but it's just something that is never going to make me happy mm-hmm. because when it comes down to it, I can't, I can't strive for something. I can't strive for love from other people, from validation from other people, if I can't get that from myself. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the number one thing that I was trying to learn. I can't love other people fully if I cannot love myself. How did and you I figure can't that love out, Christ Lucy? Right. Where'd you get that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people take forever. You've learned. In two years, what it took me 20 years to learn. Wow. I think that I really, I actually truly have no idea. I just remember, oh, I think that um, I remember one of my friends um, who moved away. She's not my, um, she's not in town anymore, but I remember this was also a huge thing for me. She, um, she had a very toxic relationship at home and mm-hmm. she had this horrible home environment and stuff like that. And, um, her mother specifically was horrible to her, um, degraded her constantly and stuff like that. And no matter how bad her mother was to her, she still constantly seek that validation. And I remember, um, talking with her and preaching to her saying stuff like, you have to love yourself. You can't depend on other people to give you something that you can't even give yourself. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Like, I, I can't always depend on my parents to feed me because there's going to come a point in time where they're not going to be there and I have to be able to do that for myself. And I told her there's going to come a point in time, there's going to be a point in your life where people are not going to love you. And that's when you need to love yourself. That's when you need to come in and be like, hey, I'm good enough. I deserve better. I am better. And I love myself for everything I am and everything that I'm not. And that's good enough for me. And I told her that. And I just remember saying this. Everything that everything that could have saved me earlier, everything, I was saying that to other people. I was preaching this message to other people, telling them all of this good stuff. I was telling them all of it. And I never truly took that into account for myself and I remember telling her this and then it just I guess it sort of hit me that sounds really um cliche but it it really just sort of hit me like I can't I can't expect to 
get the love from my family and get the love from my leaders and just expect that to be good enough because at the end of the day, if I can't love myself, then what's it all, like, what's the point? Yeah. What's the point? And um, it took a long time. It took a long time of acceptance and stuff like that. But I think the biggest part of it all for me was just coming to terms not only with, um, like, I just had to come to terms with accepting my imperfections as not not as flaws, not that, not even necessarily as imperfections, but just as aspects of who I am. Mm-hmm. And I had to take into account that um, I had to basically reclaim everything that broke me before. Um, mm. And I did this most by with my activism. Yeah. Like, I remember being, um, I guess you could say getting woke in freshman year. That was my that was when I really started my road to progression. When um, I took into my, I remember reclaiming my melanin, reclaiming my color and stuff like that as mm-hmm. a good thing. Yeah. Like when guys would say stuff like, I can never like a brown girl. I'd say, good, I don't want you anyways. And when people would call me fat, I'd say, and? And? Mm-hmm. Like, okay. is that supposed to be a bad thing? Reclaiming everything that would have broken me three and a half years ago. Reclaiming yeah. that to be parts of who I am and to love that. I remember um, just posting photos of myself on Instagram and being confident about it. Um, yeah. Just wearing clothes that made me comfortable and um, not wearing clothes to please any specific standards or anything like that. Dressing not to look like a girl or not to look like a guy, but just to look like me, mm-hmm. most importantly. And not asking myself, do I look fat in this dress? Because if I do, then what what about it like there's racism there is sexism there's homophobia in this world and people are really 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 trying to make us stress over our weight that the logic behind the hatred that was ingrained and taught to me just didn't just started to not make sense it just all started to add up and i started to realize how ridiculous it all was and how how it wasn't worth any of my time And um, I got to this point in which I just became unapologetic for who I was and who I am. And being unapologetic, I feel like that that not only reclaimed what broke me and made it made it good, made it light, made it something that I loved, but that also helped others to do the same. Yeah. Like I've gotten so many. I feel like it it was it all became worth it when I would get texts from people saying, Thank you for doing what you do because too many people are afraid to do it and I've always been afraid of showing who I am. But since of since I've seen what you're doing, that's inspired me to do to do the same, to love myself more, to try to be better. And seeing texts like that, seeing people send me stuff like that, that makes it all worth it. Because I think back to the number one motivation for me, which was my sister. Mm-hmm. And I just think back to what if she saw this? What if she saw me, a girl just like her, loving herself unapologetically? What if she saw this instead of what I saw at her age? Because at her age, I saw women hating themselves. Mm-hmm. I saw women being talked down to and accepting it. I saw melanin and brown skin and black skin and any skin other any skin color other than white being a bad thing I saw all of these things and I just think back on it and I just remember I don't want her to see that Mm -hmm. I don't want her to have to see that I don't want her to have to accept that as true 
because it isn't. And my roach progression just just was crafted purely around self-acceptance, like true, raw, real self-acceptance. And to get to this, to get there, you have to realize that you you can be broken and you can be messed up and you can be flawed or whatever you want to be, but just knowing that that's good enough, knowing that that is good enough. As long as you're trying, that is good enough. Whatever you're trying to do, as long as you're trying to be better, that's good enough. And I just had to change my goal from being perfection to being progression. And I had to set that and I had to stay true to it. And I had to remember what it was for and why it's worth it. And to this day, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with that. There are still times, daily even, mm-hmm. where I get into the same mindset that I was in before. There are always going to be setbacks, and I still have them to this day. But I'm still trying, and that's a lot better than where it was before. I'm still trying to be better. I'm still trying to love myself more. I'm still trying to accept myself for who I am. And as long as I'm doing that, I feel like I'm I'm satisfied. That's good enough for me. I don't care if that's not good enough for whoever is listening to this because that really, frankly, doesn't matter. It's my path. It's my road to progression. And as long as I'm happy with it, and that's all that matters at this point. You know, I think if someone were to look at you on social media, you have that voice you talked about. You have that unapologetic voice who is passionate about worth, self-acceptance. What you said about reclaiming everything through your activism, I see that there. But I think Mm -hmm. if people... If people knew that whole backstory, now that, you know, maybe they know more now, it makes even more mm-hmm. sense to them. It's even more powerful because yeah. of where you came from. This isn't just some mm-hmm. girl getting on a high horse. This is a girl who knows. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know it. And that makes you more powerful. And I think that, that makes what you do in your future more powerful. Mm-hmm. I feel like you have a mission and I feel like you know it. And I want to know what is your mission in this life? I've asked myself this question a lot. Um, Like, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And I think that the most straight up honest answer that I can give anyone is just to make a change. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily a revolutionary change, not a change that will change the world, but just a change. I feel like I'm here on this earth because I have stories to tell. I feel like the color of my skin is the same color that was on my ancestors' skin. And they had voices too, but they weren't able to use them in the same way that I am today. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to speak for those who have been silenced. I'm here to help elevate the voices that aren't heard enough, that that can't be loud enough just because other people are speaking. I'm, I'm here to tell stories that have been erased or rewritten. I'm here to bring that change that needs to be brought. I'm here to do that with absolutely no shame, with no apologies, 
and with no no filter honestly mm-hmm. because especially no filter I feel like that's a huge thing um just because I see so many um so many people talk about like progression and change and stuff and it's this watered down um story that's been retold um and I feel like it's easy to tell a story without like skipping over all the bad parts it's easy to get to the good parts of a movie if you just skip over the hard parts the difficult parts but that's the thing like the the hardest parts for me were those were what really brought me to where I am now and those difficult parts that I had to go through that's what that's what I'm here for I'm here to to bring light to those and to make sense of them and to make sure that other people know that, hey, if you're going through this too, that's okay. I went through it as well, and there's more. There's another page. This is not a period. This is just a comma. You can keep going. Um, And I feel like that's my mission, just making sure that people know that there's more. Hmm. You're you're doing that. I know you are. Thank so you. Just keep going. You know, I have so many more questions to ask you, but I think that would have to be a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to ask you one final question. I think you, you partly mm-hmm. answered it just now. So if you were to sum up the lesson that you have learned these last few years, what would it be? I think that if I were to sum up the lesson I've learned over these past few years, I think that it would have to be that no matter what, you have to make decisions for yourself, take ownership of them, accept them, and keep going in order to move on. Because I feel like the number one thing that was holding me back from everything was just not opening that door. That was the number one thing. And it's it's not a matter of not getting enough. It's not a matter of not having enough. It's just a matter of being ready and willing to take what you have and to turn it into what you need. Hmm. And that's something that took me a long time to realize. Um, but I've realized it now and I've realized that everything I have if I had more if I had everything in the world it doesn't matter it just what matters at the end of the day is what I choose to do with that and if I'm happy with that with myself and that the only validation I should be searching for is validation from myself and the validation from anyone else just simply simply isn't as important. Because when it comes down to it, when I go to sleep at night, I'm sleeping with my own thoughts, with my own mind, with my own beliefs and opinions. And that's what matters. Being happy with that, that's what matters. Because depending on everyone else to make me happy, that's just something that that's just something that's never going to happen. And you just have to come to the point in your life in which you realize that 
you're enough. You matter. You deserve to take up space in this world. And that you have to realize that. You have to come to terms with that. You have to accept that for yourself. If you've learned that much in just the last few years, I can't wait to see where the next 10 take you. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited to see your future, Lucy. <laughs> um, Thank you so much, Monica. Since you, since you are a poet, mm-hmm. do, you, do you have something you can share? I mean, if you don't, I'm. it's totally fine. I don't know. I kind of want to have people hear your, your voice say something that you've okay. written. Okay. Okay. Um, the title is called um, Forgotten Letters. And I think I wrote this in, I think, eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Or no, no, no. I think I wrote this at the end of ninth grade. At the end of ninth grade. Right. Okay. Kay. For the nights that you wish to hurt yourself, read this. You are beautiful in an imperfect, flawed, and raw kind of way. The way your lips curve upwards when you talk about your favorite show. The way your eyes glow when you laugh. The way you dip your heads when others point out your potential. You are beautiful. And hearing your soul through your songs is beautiful. And seeing you truly happy is beautiful. And believing in yourself and your future is beautiful. And you are beautiful. And you are beautiful. And you are beautiful. You deserve to exist. Tonight is not the night for self-destruct buttons. Tonight is not the night for mouthfuls of pills. Tonight is not the night that you deserve to hurt and ache and feel pain. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to love yourself because you deserve love, not hate. Joy, not judgment, support, not scrutiny. You are worth it. Let me say that again because you are worth it. The scars on your hips from Survivor. The voices in your head scream still surviving, and that's okay. Because you don't always need a bottle of pills to be fixed. You don't always need to pay someone to give you help, and you don't always need to be cured because you are not a disease. You are not a mistake that needs a whiteout. You are not a wrong letter that needs to be written over. You are you, and you can be lost and confused and far from flawless, and that's okay because you are okay, and if not, then you will be, and I will not put a label or a timestamp on your healing process. You can just heal, and I will not make your end goal perfection because the only goal is progression, and I will not try to fix you because there is nothing to fix. So on nights, when you rather see blood on your wrists instead of bracelets. When you're rummaging through baskets looking for a shirt with sleeves that are long enough. When you hang your head over that drain, vomiting out lies and self-hatred. When you save your tears for a time that's convenient to everyone but yourself. When you care for everyone but yourself. When you muster up the strength to fight for everyone but yourself. Please. Stop. Breathe. Call me. I can't thank you enough for this interview. You have changed my life in so many ways, and I know you are changing others. Oh my gosh! Thanks for taking the time oh to do gosh. this tonight, Lucy. Yeah, of course. What the heck? <laughs>
Can you believe the wisdom that came out of that 16-year-old? I feel really lucky to know Lucy and be influenced by her. What did you take away from her interview? Tell me by sending me a direct message or tagging me with the hashtag about progress podcast. I want to share that highlight I promised you. I had an anonymous commenter who recently wrote on my post about my interview with Heather Fujikawa, which was episode number one of the podcast. Anyway, she commented about hearing these podcasts and how they have been inspiring to her and that this past summer she was diagnosed with leukemia, but she is not letting it limit her. It was a short comment, but it really struck me and I've ruminated over it for about a week. I just want to highlight this anonymous listener and her drive to not be ruled by fear in this really difficult time. So thank you, whoever you are, and just know that your choice to face this diagnosis head on is inspiring me and it's inspiring me to be grateful for the life I have and I wish you the best in your treatment. I want to highlight more of you, more of you who are doing things that scare you, however big or small. Please nominate yourself. You deserve it. Nominate yourself to receive a little shout out on this podcast or nominate someone else. We need to hear more of your stories and be pushed by the fears you are tackling. You can nominate away by contacting me on my blog, which I'll link in the show notes or by sending me a direct message on social media and you'll find me on all of those at About Progress. I have another interview coming for you next week. It's going to be a surprise, mostly because I haven't chosen between a couple. (laughs) But it's a surprise. Thank you for your encouragement, for being here, for keeping this thing going. And if you love it, please share this with people who you think could use this whole message in their lives. Have a great week and take care of yourself.